안녕하세요. Welcome to Afternoon of Delight, where Leah, Megan, and Amy, three American romance novelists discussing all things K-romance from a writer's lens. We fangirl over our favorite actors and actresses, talk up our trope addictions, and nerd out on K-drama deep dives. We'll throw in a few K-pop and K-skincare wrecks for good measure, because why not ride the haul you wave all the way to shore? So grab some duck bokeh and listen to your new favorite unease. Hey, everybody. Hello. Hi there. So, you know, it's been a tumultuous week as we've acknowledged, you know, we had lots of sicknesses happening. I'm happy to report in case anyone's been losing sleep that my face is beginning to work, which is a big psychological boost. Amy and Megan can attest that my mouth is moving better now. Yeah, she looks miles better. Yeah, I mean, I honestly... I forgot that you had the Bell's palsy going on when we logged on today. And then after a few minutes, I was like, oh, wait, like, Leah looks awesome. So, yeah. Yeah. It's just when I smile and I look like Popeye, that's when it all comes (laughs) crashing back. But, you know, in terms of things being positive, that's a positive. However, I'm unhappy to report that positivity and happiness is not uniform among all of our households right now. And Amy needs to share some emotional processing that's happening in her home. We have some emotional distress in my home. We do. So (laughs) this is a hard thing to talk about everybody, but it's an important conversation. It's an important conversation. It's an important conversation, (laughs) but it's hard to discuss. And then I started with, y'all know I have three cats and you know where this is going. I have three cats and you know, cats have needs. They have personalities and they have their ways of crying out for help. And (laughs) I'm sorry. I feel like such an asshole. I know. I'm trying not to laugh as I'm saying this. This is serious stuff, you guys. So long story short is I have two boy cats and one girl cat. And the girl cat from the start has had issues. She is a nervous Nelly. She has bladder stones. She's on special food, which means all my cats are on special food because we have to resolve this bladder stone issue, which this food does, but it costs me a fortune every month. And then all of a sudden, last week, she's decided that my living room is now her litter box, which is not okay. So my first thought was, oh my gosh, what if she's got, you know, the bladder stones again and we're having some issues here. So I take her to the vet and let me just tell you, like driving to the vet with this cat and her little cat carrier thing, my whole car shakes because that's how hard she shakes um, because she's so scared. So she's got some issues and we get to the vet and he does, you know, a quick checkup on her. Everything seems fine. Nothing in the house has changed that I know of in the past, you know, couple of weeks or whatever. He's like, I think that this is anxiety related and we're going to put her on antidepressants. And I was like, like real antidepressants? He's like, yes. I'm like, I'm like, I'm going to go fill this prescription. He's like, yes, you can go fill this prescription at Walgreens. This is like a human antidepressant. (laughs) And you're going to give your cat half a pill every day. So I'm standing in line at Walgreens filling my prescription for my cat. Like, I have to say Is your cat's name on the bottle? It is on the bottle. It says Agnes Pine Cat on the bottle. (laughs) (laughs) But here's the thing, Amy, is we all know that, like, for positive mental health, this is not something that can be fixed by medication alone. So what therapy plan do you have? So Okay. So I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked. Well, first of all, therapy for me, because trying to give a cat a pill, like, it's actually called pilling a cat. Like, that, it's a verb. And I have to cut this tiny pill in half and then hide it in her food. And it has taken many different methods, but she's finally eating it. So we've got that going on. 
But I also have this spray called Feel Away, if anybody wants yes! to know what it is. We have used that. And I've got Feel Away, and I Feel Away is like natural like cat pheromones that's supposed to calm your cat and reduce anxiety. And so I spray the Feel Away in the spot where she likes to use it as her litter box to hopefully calm her down when she like sniffs that spot and make her feel okay. I also bought new litter, which is like an old litter brand. Like I usually switch off between two litter brands. So I, I'm like, maybe she just doesn't like the litter I'm using right now. And so I got a brand that I had before and poured that in the litter boxes. And really, we're just, we're having some one-on-one talks too. Like <laughs> We are, we're, you know, I, I'm giving her some attention. Aww. I'm trying to, you know, acknowledge that I, I see her, I see her anxiety and I'm here for her. But also don't fucking piss and shit on my carpet anymore. (laughs) I mean, reasonable. Yeah. So I just want to make a plug for something you may not have considered. Sure, please do. Okay. So at one point before I ever got my dog, I don't know if you remember this, but um, I almost adopted, like, I don't even know what it is, like a Bernese mountain dog. Yes. It was a giant dog. And I didn't want it at all. But I got, like, stuck in this, like, weird like situation. Like, you felt obligated. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the dog was, like, 190 pounds. I mean, I don't even know. It's, like, it looked like a bear. Its name was Oso, which means bear in Spanish. And its owner was playing baseball in Japan. And the dog was not going to make it for very long. And the house it was staying in was no longer able to take it. And so somehow Nick was gone. And the people who had it basically came to me and were like, well, can you take it? And... I don't know how that became me. These things just happen sometimes, probably because I have bad boundaries. And (laughs) I, like, I remember calling my mom and being, like, you know, they want me to, like, hospice out this dog that's, like... And my mom was, like, absolutely effing not. You're not doing it. Which gave me moral fortitude to be, like, I'm going to ask some more questions here. It turned out that... So the owner's speaking to me, being, like, okay, well, the dog needs... Has kidney issues, and it has to eat a diet of squirrel and rabbit specialty bot. So that was my first, like in my mind, as I heard that I was thinking, oh, well, I'm not gonna, this isn't gonna work for me. I can't do this. (laughs) And then um, the second thing that happened was he was like, because of the like kidney issues, and this is where the, my advice comes in, we do Reiki on the animal, you know, like Reiki therapy. However, the Reiki therapy is not in town. It's remote pet Reiki. And I thought to myself, what fucking genius <laughs> has hung their sign out to do remote pet Reiki? Right. Because I will do that for your pet. Let me tell you, Agnes, you give me, I will charge you, you a deal. You Reiki my pet. Yeah, that's yeah. fine. Yeah. I'm going to do like, I would normally charge $100 an hour. I'm going to drop it to 75 for mates rates. <laughs> oh my God. And I will lay on my couch and send out positive healing energy to Agnes. <laughs> And this is like what they were telling me, like, can you take on the dog, feed it the specialized diet of squirrel and rabbit and And pay for Reiki. Yeah. And never mind the vet, you know, hospicing out this animal, just get it on the Reiki schedule. And I just remember being like, I don't know what I had to just really be like, I'm sorry, this isn't going to work for me. (laughs) No, absolutely not. I remember this was happening and I was like, I don't want to make you feel bad about it. But I was like, so happy when your mom was like, no. 
<laughs> I don't know what was wrong with me. Sometimes I just feel like I get stuck in these situations and I don't even, I didn't even want the dog, but it was looking at me and I was like, oh my God, I don't want to have this dog's like suffering on my karma. But then I realized, you know what? This owner can have that karma. Not yeah, me. it's not, it's not yours. It's not <laughs> your actually, burden I will to bear. Say the happy news was that the dog, apparently the owner had to come back and deal with the dog. And the dog was so happy to be back with its owner, it healed itself, I guess. Stop. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Didn't even so. need that Reiki. I do also, I want to point out, I know we were like laughing and joking. Mental health is not a laughing matter. We have all dealt with it. I just, I did not know. And it's funny, like the people that I've told this to, like locally who have pets, like, oh, yeah, my dog's on anti-anxiety, too. I went out with a friend Thursday night, and I was running late because I was the first night I was trying to get Agnes to take the medicine, and I could not get her to do it. And when I finally picked my friend up, I'm like, I'm sorry. And I told her the situation, and she's got a a dog, a Cavapoo named Loki. And she's like, oh, yeah, Loki's on anti-anxiety meds, too. I'm like, why did I not know that this was an issue with animals? But like, as I've been reading more about it... It's super common in cats to have anxiety. Yeah. So we got our cats, our other cats, before we had kids. And Ferris got really bad anxiety when we had the baby in the house. So we had to buy that feel-away stuff and, like, plug – it came with, like, plug-ins. Oh, yeah. So there's, like a, yeah, there's, like, diffusers yeah, like now. You can get a diffuser. <laughs> It's like a Glade plug-in that you like plugged in. Of cat pheromones. Yeah, of cat pheromones. And it smelled like toast. (laughs) I remember it smelled like toast. It might be unscented now for humans, but at the time it smelled – that was, you know, 15 years ago or something like that. 10 years ago maybe. But it smelled like toast. And I told you that now Ferris, he's really old and he takes kidney medication. And my husband is tasked with giving it to him because I do enough stuff with the pets. And Ferris is his cat and he cheeks it. He'll cheek it like a mental ward patient and then spit it out later. Like, I mean, like minutes later, we'll find the pill. Like, that's a smart cat. And then what do you do? You have to pick up this, like, gooey, like, half-disintegrated pill and put it back in his mouth? Yeah. It's gross. And, like, he's just – it's so gross. Do you You wrap it in food? Like, will he – can you hide it? Oh, no. Because he won't eat anything other than his dry food. So he can't put – he doesn't eat treats. So, yeah, it's, like, so frustrating. But, I mean, you pretty much have to thrust his head back and just, like, drop it right down his throat or he cheeks it. Oh, my gosh. And see, that's the thing. Like, I am one person here giving her this medication. So I am cutting this teeny tiny pill in half and hoping the other half doesn't go flying onto the floor, which it happened the first night. Yeah. Cutting this teeny tiny pill in half and then, like, sandwiching it in her wet food. So there you have it, folks. Thank you for listening to 11 minutes on cat anxiety. <laughs> well, I feel like, we're like a, we should have like a side hustle as like vet hacking. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, I mean, we didn't talk about our bearded dragons today, so everyone should be happy about that. <laughs> but do you know what else is sexy? <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Not sure about Sex. that segue. <laughs> Do you know what's hotter than cat depression? (laughs) Everything. (laughs) Cutting toenails. (laughs) But yeah, honestly, today you may not have gathered by the uh, (laughs) erotic intro, but we're talking about heat levels in K-drama today. So, you know, I'm going to take it away and we'll see where this convo goes. And hopefully it takes us somewhere full of a lot more pleasure than where we are right now. (laughs) It wasn't until the 21st century that South Korea gained a significant international audience for its popular culture. 
So, you know, not all that long way back in 2004 is when the South Korean government actually started making a sizable investment in entertainment, starting with, you know, $100 million in, you know, getting Hallyu going. And what happened next is while we're all here, you know, the Korean wave swept through the world, first in Asia, but eventually the West, and that tide just keeps coming in. And for us as professional romance writers, we got swept away by the joy of trope-filled love stories. But it became clear right from our very first drama, Crash Landing on You, that there were some key differences in many Korean romances versus what we're used to in the West. So look at something popular like Bridgerton, which has cute bare butts flexing as broody sexy dukes get frisky with new brides all around the ducal estate. Meanwhile, in Crash Landing on You, we have a chaste kiss and not even bed side by side like I Love Lucy, but apparently these two almost 40 lovebirds had to be in whole other rooms to like call it a night. And, you know, we kind of just accepted that was just like the way of K-drama. You know, we were new fans to the world. But then we got to Coffee Prince a few shows later, and there was like no denying that these two lovebirds were off to get it on. And then we watched What's Wrong with Secretary Kim, then it became even more clear. Then you pivot to something like Nevertheless, and like, wow, K-drama really went from like closed door to wide open. Except, you know, has it really? Because plenty of dramas are still coming out and releasing right now that have very little outside of hand-holding and maybe some sweet kissing. I'm looking at you when the camellia blooms. And, you know, does that matter? Does a love story need clear lovemaking between characters to satisfy our emotional itch as Western viewers? Or is it refreshing to be invited to enjoy relationships where the bedroom fun is left up to the imagination? So, like I said, that's the topic of today's show. We're going to talk about sex, baby. We're going to talk about you and me <laughs> and all the reasons we might need to see An Bo Hyun without his shirt ready to get down to Bone Town like in Yumi Cells. But then, you know, we have happiness and Park Hyun's sixth character actually does sleep next to the girl of his dreams, I Love Lucy style, <laughs> even though he's like a whole man with <laughs> a whole presumably man. a whole man's needs. But you know what? Both of these dramas are cute, and I think we... Well, at least with happiness, we love the romance with our whole hearts. So let's push into the topic, at least just the tip. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had That's to. That's good. So teacher Amy, can you share the different levels of heat that might be found in a romance novel just to start us off so that I don't know how many of our listeners do read romance, presumably, you know, more than a few, but I think it kind of just helps to kind of ground like everyone in like what we're going to be talking about in terms of content that's like from the most chaste to the most boots knocking. Boots knocking. Sure. I know. I feel like I'm like, you know, <laughs> hunk of spunking it again. Like I'm like 90 years old. Think of all of our different euphemisms for the horizontal mambo. Okay. So oh sure, 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 sure. <laughs> We're like golden girls now. So there are some differing definitions out there. And like some people get more into the nitty gritty of categories of heat levels. So I'm going to just give a few and not go everywhere to keep it short and sweet. Which brings me to our first category, which is sweet romance. And sweet romance is the term used to describe romance novels that either have closed door or fade to black sex. And I think novels that don't go there at all are described more as wholesome, but 
most of what I have read that's been in, you know, my repertoire is sweet. That's sort of the lowest level of heat that I've come across. But as a former teen librarian, in teen books, many call it clean romance. So that if a parent is looking for a book for their teen, but doesn't want their teen to like, you know, read penetration on the page, they often ask for clean romance, which is, you know, they're hoping for no sex on the page. Then there is the sort of gradient levels of heat, some heat versus high heat. I'd often get asked this when I would work with a, an editor for the first time, whether my book had on-page sex and if it was some heat or high heat. So I think that kind of fluctuates. But basically, some heat means yes, it happens on the page, but it isn't super graphic. Whereas high heat might mean, you know, more on-page, more graphic. But like I said, it's a gradient. But what all these levels have in common is that any sexy times that happen should be essential in pushing the plot forward, but the sexy times are not the story. Then we jump ship into erotica, which has its own scale of how much and what is on the page, but if you're picking up an erotica book, it's because you want sex to be the story, or at least a big part of it. All right. Well, thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. And... All right, then. But like, for us, like, what's your preferred term for a romance novel, or let's say a K-drama that has zero sex? Clean, sweet, closed door, another term? What say you? So I mostly prefer closed door, mostly because I I don't know, I think the terms sweet or clean are generally accepted, but it's just not my favorite. I do often use the words chaste. And usually that's kind of how I would describe like K-dramas. Look, I just want to tell like a quick story, okay? Because I think our listeners will like it. When we were talking about the euphemisms. So when Neil and I got married, we got married at a church, not because we wanted to get married in church, but because my parents got married there is a long thing. But to get married there, we had to take counseling. We had to take like marriage counseling as newlyweds. And so the counselor was like Christian based, which, you know, Neil and I aren't very religious, but we had to do it because we wanted to get married in this church. And so we had to fill out this questionnaire. And I don't think Neil realized at the time that we'd be like reading this in front of the therapist. I don't know what he thought. (laughs) I don't know what went through his brain. We were like 23. So we had this questionnaire and we're sitting in this like office in this, you know, front of this woman who's, you know, talking to us about marriage counseling. And the question was, what do you like to do together? What's your favorite thing to do together? (laughs) And I'm like, I'm looking at my paper and I'm, I wrote like watch TV together. And I look over at, (laughs) I look over (laughs) at Neil's paper (laughs) and he had written knocking boots. (laughs) (laughs) And so he is panicking because he doesn't want to read it out loud. His face gets like bright red and he's like, uh, uh, I guess like, Watch TV. Uh, you know, he's like panicking because he wrote knockin' boots. I'll never forget it. I can even just now picture his handwriting where he wrote like knockin' boots. Uh, so anyway, that's all. I just want to tell a story. So it's really funny. Uh, oh, Neil. I know. All right. <laughs> Amy, how about you? So I usually, when I'm thinking about if it is like a, a closed door, yeah, I, f- I feel like I use closed door a lot or fade to black, but I don't usually tend to say it's a sweet romance because I think that that can have so many different sort of connotations for people who don't know it. Like if, you know, if we didn't just go through all those definitions. So yeah, if I was talking about a K-drama and there was no sex on the screen, but it was implied, I would call it fade to black 
or closed door. Yeah, and I think I have this like visceral reaction to the term sweet or clean to describe a drama or romance novel without sex because I think that automatically can then like make sex something that feels like tasteless content or dirty. And then that made me think about like, look at Love and Leashes, like, you know, the BDSM K-Cinema rom-com that we all watched back in February. And that was super sweet. Like, really, like, how sweet was that? And she made him bloody and fed him kibble out of her palm. (laughs) So, you know, I think I prefer the term closed door too. And it just, you know, it tells us like, we're not going to be giving anyone in the audience a sneaky peek. And, you know, whatever is happening in that spare bed and crash landing on you is between (laughs) Sayri, Captain Ree, and baby Jesus. (laughs) I definitely feel like the language for books doesn't transfer is easily to K-dramas. Because like you said, you can have something that's got some overt sex, but it's still sweet. And so that would make it confusing. But yeah, kind of going on that, Megan, you know, writer Twitter is a wild place. Mm -hmm. And Romance Landia Twitter is even more wild. I have to say, like, in recent years, I've kind of taken a break from it. But there's occasionally, like, you know, I'll become aware of, like, you know, something that's broken Twitter, because, you know, Twitter breaks on a regular basis, given different hot takes. And here is a doozy tweet that, you know, definitely ruffled some feathers at one point. And the tweet said, sex scenes are unnecessary in films or book series. No plot point has been driven by good sex scenes, nor has there ever been a film made better by a sex scene. So, What do you think about that? (laughs) I mean, obviously, I think it's wrong. This tweet had to have been written by someone who doesn't understand how romance is plotted. Sex scenes are typically integral and a turning point in a romance plot line, which is just as important to me as any external plot. So I guess maybe if you don't see romance as a plot line, you won't think sex scenes are necessary, which means you're really missing out on like half the joy of most movies or films or shows. So I'm going to get a little weird here, but let's take Starship Troopers, for instance, which I know is not the first movie you <laughs> of think course. of. Of course. I mean, that was that was what was jumping to my mind. Yeah, too. I know. But that's me. <laughs> so it's a war satire movie with alien bugs. Okay, which is right up. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. I know that's crazy, but it is. So there's a romance between the male lead, Rico, and Dizzy, and she absolutely loves him. And it takes him a long time to notice because he He's hung up on his ex and they finally connect physically and it's pretty hot. One of the first times I saw boobies in a movie, to be honest. <laughs> and it's a romantic scene in this kind of like really bloody, violent war movie. And pretty much like the next scene, <laughs> she dies in an ambush by, you know, the alien bugs. And Rico is incredibly affected by her death, with re- which really changes the trajectory of his character arc and how he views war itself. And I fully believe that without that physical connection, his reaction would have been different. And take also Game of Thrones. The sex scenes between Kog Drago and Danny are incredibly important to their relationship arc, which was important to the overall plot of the show. They kind of go from like non-consensual sexing to this like face-to-face intimacy, which changes both of them and changes how they interact with each other and also affects their future decisions. To me, that's one of like the most important sex scenes in kind of like any show I've seen. Yeah, that's a good point. It went from being, you know, basically rapey content, which Game of Thrones was infamous for to, you know, look, in this case, problematic old school, like, rape to love you, I guess. Totally. There, but, you know. But it was still important. It was still important. And you know what? I mean, that's a whole other rich context of, like, the way that sex and fantasy and fiction have, like, you know, evolved over time or not. But that leads me to just 
making another point too, which is, you know, what I alluded to at the beginning of the podcast, which is, you know, Hallyu, this wave of Korean content that has been sweeping the world, really amplifying South Korea as like a soft power in terms of having like punching so far outside of its weight in terms of, you know, cultural reach, which becomes really interesting to think about like what the context of that might be. Because my read on it a lot of times too is, you know, you've got hard power and soft power. So hard power would be, you know, I was in San Diego this weekend and San Diego Bay, hard power was everywhere I looked. I mean, there were three aircraft carriers, one's a museum, but like two were, you know, on dock. Navy SEALs flying overhead all the time, ospreys everywhere, just military might everywhere. And I was on a sailboat and the guy who was driving the sailboat, you know, I don't know if he was my people, but a big Navy SEAL helicopter flew overhead low. And he was like, do you know what that sound is? And I was like, a helicopter <laughs> and he was like it's freedom oh my god and I was like, holy crap i don't even know what to say but that to me sums up hard power soft power is something very different but i just think that like you know south korea is like geopolitically situated between you know bigger superpowers most notably china but having people connecting in with culture and value i think actually makes a lot of really good political sense in terms of like korea (laughs) so i think that they've like done something smart there in terms of like you know let's get the world invested in us a little bit but in a way that like isn't relying on like military might and i don't know how much of a strategy it is. But you know, I think there is something to be said to it because the government's making a pretty big investment. And I don't think it's just for the GDP. However, I also think that they've been smart in thinking about how to market it because obviously a lot of their shows are network TV. So they have to be more chaste because, you know, this is family viewing time. Plus, you know, there's like a little bit more of a conservatism that even though we have a little bit more of a wink and nod in Western TV shows on network TV, like implying sexual content, that's not going to fly so much. But even their cable content is pretty chaste compared to like, you know, something you'd see like in like Fleabag or Sex in the City or something like that. And that lets them then be able to market not only into the West where, you know, we're happy to, I guess, start to embrace like more of a closed door romance, but also they can get their content out into countries that have a lot more social conservatism, you know, looking at places like Saudi Arabia or Malaysia or places where, you know, like having content be, you know, crash landing on you is going to be, you know, with that like whole idea where they're not even going to be in the same bedroom and separate beds, that's going to be received, you know, a little bit easier by like their media channels and like whatever regulations they have. So I think that I have just been impressed since getting into Korean entertainment with like the marketing genius that is K-pop and now also K-drama. And I just think that how they're strategically using heat level in their dramas is really interesting. So that all being said, we personally as romance writers have all written explicit sex scenes. So what was it like doing it for your first time? And I mean writing a sex scene. Oh, okay. I misread that. I got to change my whole answer. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) So this was really difficult for me because at the time I was first getting into writing, I was a high school English teacher and I thought I was going to be writing teen dystopian novels, which I mean, I did write one. It just never got published. And because I didn't choose a real pen name, like my pen name is AJ Pine. It was strictly for the the domain name because amypine.com was already taken. Like it's just my initials and last name. So like I was hoping that my books would one day be on the shelf in our high school library for my students to read. So I was adamant about 
about not having any on-page sex in my books, even when I did get my first book published, which was not a teen book, but what we referred to as new adult, which was romance that focused on college age characters, characters who were newly, you know, entering adulthood. And these characters do have sex. And my editor was like, Amy, you need on-page sex. But I was like, I'm going to fight tooth and nail to keep this clean in case my students read it. So I did pretty much nothing on page. Like there was a little tiny something, but it was almost nothing. And after I started reading more new adult genre and seeing how well sex could work and should work in fitting into this relationship, not to mention that no one was really writing clean NA romance, I ripped off the band-aid for book two and never looked back. But I will say, like, it was scary, especially like not just writing it and feeling like, oh my gosh, I'm saying these things on the page, but also like then, you know, this was back in the day when we had time to have each other like read like, you know, do some peer editing and stuff like that and handing it off for somebody else to read. I'm like, oh my gosh, they're going to laugh their asses off at my sex scene. Like, this is not good. I don't know what I'm doing. And I felt very out of my comfort zone. Now, 16 books later, it's all good. But yeah, it was, I mean, that was a terrifying thing to do. Even though I was like a 30 something woman, you know, I'm like, what if my parents read this book? Like, they're going to know that I know what sex is, even though I have two children. So I've done it <laughs> at least twice. It was, yeah, I mean, there, it just like opens a lot of doors in like your psyche that are really kind of terrifying. Yeah, I remember writing my first sex scene in my first book, which was not good. But my premise was epic, in my opinion. (laughs) So I had a female convict shipped where my heroine was wrongly accused. And during the voyage, you know, from like England down to the penal colonies of Australia, she starts to get tingles in her pantaloons (laughs) for the ship's doctor. Pantaloons! (laughs) (laughs) Fetching, uh, Fetching Welshman. And I have the boat hit bad weather off the coast of Van Diemen's Land, which is now known as Tasmania. And, you know, uh uh-oh, it sinks. So the heroine and hero end up surviving the accident and kind of like float on ship detritus to a nearby, you know, offshore island where they find a cave, of course, provisioned by sealers. And it's cold and they're wet from the Southern Ocean and they like build a fire. And of course, they find furs like from the sealers, (laughs) but they need that body heat obviously. I mean, like I was writing K-drama before I knew what K-drama was. (laughs) And one thing leads to another. And I was like, oh, yeah, I crushed it. Like cave sex. So hot. So good. Like I really got this. And then I gave it to my critique partner at the time who read it and called me and was like, what the actual hell did I just read? (laughs) And I realized I didn't really write a sex scene so much as a chapter of just the purplest prose. which is a term for overly ornate prose that's just so over the top, it's distracting and plain just like not good. And that's when I learned that I had used the term shuddering cock stand. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what? No one needs to have that phrase in their eyeballs. Like that's about a shuddering cock stand is about as hot as cat depression. Right. (laughs) So basically I learned that sex scene writing is an art and I had to accept it was a hard work to do. (laughs) Yeah, it's absolutely hard work. I would say like, I really had to work myself up to it. So my first sex scene was fade to black. But when I continued writing the book, I just felt like there was like something lacking in the romance between the leads. Like, Uh, like something unexplored. The heat wasn't there and I wanted it there. So I went back and I wrote, look, like a very, a very tame sex scene, like very kind. They orgasmed very quickly. Like I, you know, just, you know, easy. 
And the next book, I took myself a little bit farther. And kind of each book, I put myself out there. And I kind of kept, you know, furthering the levels I was willing to write until now I'm basically desensitized. And I use tales and alien dicks and all kinds of stuff. (laughs) 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 All right. So what's hard about writing a sex scene and what's easy? Really? Like, you're going to set me up with what is hard? The dick, Leah. The dick is hard. (laughs) All right. Hopefully. Now that that's out of my system. So I think what is difficult is coming up with synonyms for anatomy and penetration. Especially now that I'm 16 books in, it gets difficult to think of new and sexy ways to say the same thing. And I get scared sometimes that I'm writing like a scene that I've already written or saying, you know, words that I've said over and over again. So I think like, I feel like you, Megan, like right now I'm desensitized to it. I mean, I'm not writing alien tales and dicks or anything like that, but it's definitely a lot easier to say all these things and put all these things on the page. But I think what's more difficult now is making it new each time that I do it. And I guess I guess the easy comes when I have characters that make it easy for me, which is kind of hard to explain. But basically, the better I connect with my characters, I think the more easy and natural writing a sex scene for them becomes because they seem more real to me. So and I've had books where I'm like, I feel like I'm never connecting to my characters. Like, when is it going to happen? And it makes it a little bit more difficult if I'm not really truly in my character's heads to to write that sex scene. To me, I feel like what I realized, like, you know, after my shuddering cock stand fail was it makes sense to say it out loud. But, you know, I had to go through some hard knocks. <laughs> <laughs> Is that, like, sex should be important to the plot in some way. Like, they can't just be doing it to do it or... You know, that might be titillating, but it's going to get boring. And so I feel like sex really needs to have an effect on the character art or a plot point. And so to me, like, that's easy when the choice to, like, integrate sex into the book fits nicely into the overall scope of the story. But it's hard when you're not quite there yet and the sex feels shoehorned in. No one likes shoehorned sex. (laughs) You know, it's dry and it's rough. But I will say something that I will say is a pro tip If you're ever looking to, you know, write romance, I don't know how many of our listeners like, you know, do like write or have writer aspirations or actively writing. And, you know, I don't think this will surprise either of you that I feel like if you're trying to figure out something with your character and you're stuck on them and something that they want in life or within a relationship or within themselves, rather than throwing them into a dry, rough, no lubed sex scene, masturbation is always the way. Yeah. Because I feel as if there's like a lot of vulnerability, a lot of introspection, and a lot of like character unpacking that happens in a masturbation scene. And I will say they are truly probably some of my favorite to write. I just have a real affinity for the vulnerability and feels that can come with an emotional masturbation scene. (laughs) (laughs) Especially from a guy's perspective. It's like my total thing. Yeah. I mean, I agree with both of you. But sex scenes are one thing, but including them in a whole romance novel and making them fit the characters for me is the hard part. Because I really like to think about how my characters will act in intimate situations. Like, basically, I want to keep the characterization carrying through the sex scenes it's that's who you know to me how they act during sex is a part of 
the romance plot and who they are. So, you know, I have to think, you know, will the male be dominant or maybe he'll be timid and maybe the heroine is like a really aloof person, but during sex is when she allows herself to be vulnerable and shows her true emotions and feelings. So making the sex scenes work within the characterizations that I've established is the difficult part. Also, <laughs> I write alien romance, and since they are usually traipsing like over a jungle alien planet, I need to write scenes where they get to bathe every once in a while. <laughs> Which is always difficult. It's really funny. I always say like when I'm reading post-apocalyptic novels or often like paranormal or science fiction romance, I always know a sex scene is coming when they like find a shower. Like they just happen <laughs> or they, they happen to find like a lake and they get to bathe and I'm like, ooh, a sex scene's coming. Once they get clean, you know, it's coming. So where is there a K-drama where you wish there was clear sex that took place between the leads and no one is allowed to say crash landing on you because we have beat that horse yeah. into the ground yeah whatever i think your cloy moratorium is mean but <laughs> fine fine i'll go on to something else because that's the one i won't shut up about but i i've got another one so i would say maybe the king eternal monarch i mean they were crossing worlds to be with each other other than lee Minho being the king i'd have liked more romance in general in this drama though i get the parallel world situation is a lot to contend with as far as the writing blah 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 but i'd have liked more reads reason, I guess, for them to be taking this huge life-altering risks to be together. Like, show me, don't tell me why Ligon is worth it in all the ways. For me, I'm going to go with When the Camellia Blooms because of a couple of reasons. One is like the age of the characters. Like they were more mature. I mean, it was a Nuna romance, but I mean, like, look, she was like late thirties, possibly even, I mean, I think that they, they were probably projecting her as like early to mid thirties, but like, you know, in real life, she's like over 40. And then, you know, we have Kong Ha Newell who had just come out of the military glow up like situation, which I mean, come on, let's just like not waste that freaking opportunity just as me being a complete pervert. But I mean, they had some sweet Sweet kissing, they had hand holding, they have him just obsessed with her the whole drama. Like, just she is it for him, and he is gone for her, and he will do anything for her. But, like, I don't know. I'm like, it just felt strange to me that they never, like, I don't know. I guess because his love for her was so over the top and crazy. And he just was like in his feelings publicly at all times, just like making scenes all around their little town, serial killer subplot to be damned. Like, you know, we have really great emotion. We have times when she's like admits she likes him and he's like crying. But I just felt like, I don't know, I'm like, they're adults. And I guess I kind of would have just liked to have seen them like clearly looking like they'd like taken their relationship to like that level of intimacy, just so that there was like a little bell. I mean, I love this drama so much. And I love his character so much. But like, maybe just to take it to a little bit of realism out of like some of like the cartoonishness that was like his like pursuit of her. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think I would have bought that. Like, I think I needed to see that a little bit. Anyway, okay. Yeah, I'm gonna say I wanted a sex scene and happiness. I thought the leads had great chemistry and they'd known each other since they, you know, were in high school and both Yi Hyun and Sebom made so many sacrifices for each other. I mean, at least we got a kiss and a happily ever after, but I don't know, man. I mean, they slept in separate beds. Park Hyun Sik was a whole post army man. I know. They slept in separate beds next to each other. And they weren't the same beds. Like, that drove me bananas (laughs) that they were different model beds, too. They're like 
feds from a dumpster oh that they gosh. found. Anyway, I just, you know, part of me just wanted them to just say, screw everyone else in that apartment building and just like stay in their apartment and just like screw all day. Like I would have loved that. There'd been no plot, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, I just would have loved to see that even maybe like at the end. I don't know, but I know there's a lot going on in that show, but that's one I just wish. So just to flip that now, like, where's a time where sex felt organic and in keeping with the story in a K-drama? I mean, I think we all loved it so much in Healer and also Secretary Kim and, oh my gosh, Coffee Prince. Coffee Prince is one of my favorites. Loved it. Every one of those sex scenes felt integral to the plot, like, perfectly done. So for me, look... I'm still going to stand Yumi Cells, even though, like, I think it's a difficult drama just for a lot of folks. But I thought that the sex in it felt more real and relatable to, like, what probably, like, single people in, like, urban environments who are really attractive are, like, getting up to. <laughs> and, like, so I don't know. Yeah, no, I yeah. agree with that. I actually completely agree with that. And so I felt like it was handled nicely. I felt like it moved their relationship forward or pulled them apart. And I felt like it dealt with like some of the awkwardness. I don't know. I really liked it. Plus, we got um, Bo Yun shirtless, which... Never going to complain. No, never going to complain. And then two other ones that I really thought did well with the plot were It's Okay to Not Be Okay. I thought that, you know, when we see, you know, the leads there get down in the gothic mansion, I thought it was a nice time because their, their relationship had been so push-pull, push-pull push-pull and to see them come together I thought actually was really helpful and let them both kind of drop some guard with each other. And then I'm going to say another one that's stuck with me and it's not just for Ang Bo Hyun <laughs> is my name, which it's to me a much sadder sex scene. But I felt like again it was important to have like this like emotional vulnerability and I really felt like given everything that was happening in the story, taking it to sex actually was a way to unpack a lot of the feelings that were happening in the plot at the time in a way that I felt like was like good storytelling. Yeah, I actually really agree with that. So I know Amy said healer, but I'm going to say it again. To me, it's still the best use of a sex scene in a K-drama to further both the external plots and the character arcs. Just fantastic. Also, Fight for My oh, Way. Yes. Okay. <laughs> that is a good one. Oh my gosh, yeah, yes. Just really great friends to lovers. It felt real to me. I mean, who is not going to bone Park So Joon ripped as a MMA fighter and Kim Ji-won looked amazing in that show but just overall it felt organic to how their relationship would progress especially because they were such good friends and i love the scene where she kind of like kisses all the places on his body as like protection before a fight which i know wasn't like directly sex but it was still like intimate you know and then i would also say my roommate is a gumio just because the male lead is you know very closed off and he really only like kisses to gain power for his fox speed but with a female lead he finally you know gets down and gives a shit and it's really lovely okay so now we are at our favorite part of every episode which is our k-pop wreck of the week and megan what do you have for us this week so i have a really fun kind of like summer song and it's called beatbox by nct dream and i mean when you think of beatbox that's what the song is but yeah it's just kind of like a good summer song and the video is really fun and bright so yeah, I recommend Beatbox by NCT Dream. If you enjoy our podcast, you have our patrons to thank, at least in part. Afternoon of Delight Patreon allows us to keep creating content for y'all to enjoy. Thank you so much to everyone who is supporting us there. And not to brag, but our Patreon community is pretty awesome. And you can join at a tier that feels good to you. 
gain access to fun perks like K-drama posts, monthly Patreon-only bonus podcasts, and even a live K-drama support group on Zoom. Because we know firsthand what it's like to have no one to talk to about those crazy plot twists, amazing characters, and all those feelings. And look, no one should have to walk that walk alone. So learn more by visiting afternoonadelight.com. That's www.afternoonadelight.com. And hey, while you're on the website, you can check out Afternoona Delight podcast merch, find links to book recommendations, bop along to our K-pop recs, blow up your skin with K-merch recs, find all of our social media and a link to our email so you can send us recommendations or feedback. And hey, while you're at it, why don't you pop over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review? It really helps with our discoverability. Gamsamnida. All right. So Amy, I think another thing that's worth like kind of unpacking today on this topic is what's the difference to you between sex scenes that are meant for a male gaze or one for more of a female gaze? And yes, I am aware that like, you know, I'm making this like a gendered conversation, but you know, apologies for that too. <laughs> I just, I feel it. I say, I think I apologize for that in my explanation as well. So. <laughs> okay. But I think it, like, I was just trying to think of like how to, you know, there is kind of like, we're talking about this terms of more like overarching cliches. So I think, I guess right. that's where I'm trying to go with it. Right. So the male gaze basically highly sexualizes and objectifies the woman. Like basically the film camera is there to point out how sexy the woman is as if it's like a cishet relationship between the male camera and the female on screen. Sadly, I think Western media makes this more prevalent. Like I think of like Bond girls or like Megan Fox in Transformers. Like it's all about how sexy they are. Like that is sort of their purpose on screen. Those characters exist for the heterosexual male gaze. The female gaze, however, doesn't sexualize the female character, but instead gives her like agency and support. And I think we see this a lot in K-drama from both male and female writers and directors, which we continue, I think, to get shocked by when we're like, oh my gosh, this was a male writer and look at what they did. Think Parkman Young in almost everything we've seen her in so far. Healer, Secretary Kim, her private life. Her characters have agency. They are dressed the way she would dress herself and not the way a man would dress her. And they are supported by the male counterparts. And the romance part, the, the sex situations, you know, if it is on screen, are very much equal footing or even giving her more power. Like I definitely see her as sort of the dominant one in the healer situation. And I really love that they did that. And because you did not say I couldn't mention Chloe here, I think that one of the reasons we all fell for K-drama when we watched Crash Landing on You was because we had this powerful female lead in Yoon Seri. And even though we didn't get a sex scene with them, which, you know, we'll never shut up about, is that we had this sort of character that we're not really used to seeing. And she wasn't a highly sexualized character, which I think was important. And then we have, you know, Captain Rhee, who is not the alpha hole, often preferred by the male gaze perspective, but instead the type of alpha Megan described earlier on in our pod is the one who would have, you know, like a fanny pack full of snacks for you, yet will still like kick ass when you're in danger. So I think this whole like female gaze, male gaze thing is important to note because I think that does kind of explain some of the chasteness maybe that we do see in K-drama because it speaks to this sort of you know, giving female that agency and that sort of support from the male rather than objectifying her. Yeah, I buy that. (laughs) (laughs) So Megan, something else I think that like I want to touch on as well is the growing popularity of boy love dramas, which again, like, 
I don't know how I feel about calling it boy love dramas, but that's just how they're called. So, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, they're referred to as like BL and that's kind of how everyone refers to them. So it's hard to say anything else. <laughs> yeah. I, but I mean, like, we're talking about more like overtly queer romantic content. And honestly, it is more prevalent as like a male male type relationship. So do you notice a heat level when, you know, you're watching a BL drama? And what about like also comparing BL dramas from like Korea to say a queer romance from somewhere like Thailand or Japan? Yeah, I mean, boy love dramas as K-dramas are typically, you know, very chaste. They're, first of all, a lot of the BL K-dramas are like in high school anyway. They're like kind of like high school set. I mean, yes, there are adult ones too, but just a lot of them are younger. So not all, but a lot. Thai BL dramas, on the other hand, whoo boy. So there are some chaste Thai BL dramas, but then there also are some that are pretty explicit. And Leah and I are watching Kin Porsche right now which is so explicit that I find it hard to believe that they weren't just like doing it on set. I mean, it is, it is. <laughs> it's true. It's, it's so a true. lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. I, I mean, yeah, the verdict's still out in a couple of scenes. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I found that too with, you know, I've started to watch a little bit more J-drama, not much, but a little bit. And, you know, I saw... I, and I haven't finished the series, but I watched the first part, which is called Mood Indigo, and it's followed by another drama called The Novelist. And Mood Indigo, again, like, that was, like, my first foray from, like, you know, some of these more, like, high school first love, like, color rush or semantic error, like, being in college. You know, kind of, like, very, like, you know, you might get, like, a kiss to, like, some very, very, like, gentle sexuality to Mood Indigo, which was just, like, some raw, very, like, emotionally fraught and highly explicit content and I was like oh it's a whole other rodeo here <laughs> and then yeah then we've got Kim Porsche which we're, we'll talk about Kim Porsche as its own podcast because the hype on that drama I think has been real and I think is so warranted and then yeah I just thought I'd just touch really quickly on you know we've got K-drama which is on TV aired for you know it's got the TV, like, you know, considerations attached to it. And then as I started to watch more K-cinema, I was like, hold the phone. And it's jarring because you can see a character who, like, might be in a drama and have, like, no kissing, maybe some subtle hand-holding, looking at you like Kim tae to I'm seeing, like, everything that biology has gifted her <laughs> <laughs> explicitly shared in, like, a movie like The Handmaiden. Or there's, you know, another movie, A Frozen Flower, which is, like, a love triangle between uh, fairly savage and problematic king, his bodyguard, and the queen. And, I mean, these, again, I was like, wow, this is, like, you know... We've got Gong Yu and a man and a woman. So it's interesting and overwhelming. I kind of find it a little bit when not the sex content at all. Like I can, I'm a big girl. I can handle like very overt sex content in my media. But when it's like an actor that I've like, or an actress I've connected to in dramas, and then I'm seeing them in cinema where they're just like literally letting it all hang out and just going for it. And you're seeing them like bump and grind. I don't know. I feel like almost embarrassed. And it's funny because I'm like, I know you in all these dramas. And now I feel like much more connected to you where like, I don't have that same reaction that I do in Western stuff where I'm like used to seeing some like a lot of actors like, you know, going for it all over the place. I don't know why I get like a little bit more like, oh, gosh, like, I feel like I've gotten to know you in all these dramas. And now I'm like watching you like boobs out or butt flexing and I feel embarrassed. <laughs> So, Amy, how does sex in a K-drama tend to work within the pacing or beats of the story? 
So in a K-drama, it usually comes later in the drama when the leads have established a rapport of respect and trust, where we know and they know that it's sort of the definite next step to take and it does, you know, further their relationship. Like we know when sex happens that this couple is likely in it for the long haul. And this is not to slut shame a one night stand or casual sex, but the way that K-drama stories for the leads tend to work is that they establish that rapport first so that when the sex finally happens, not only are the characters ready for it, but we, the viewers, get a much-needed reward or payoff for our patients. Like, it is teased out for a long time. And I think that's what I enjoy about the pacing of K-dramas is the slower pace and the teasing out of this relationship. You know that this is going to be a couple eventually, but it's like, when, when, when are we going to get to it? And what are we going to get when we do get to it? So I do, I like that pacing. K-drama does have a different pacing than a romance novel typically does where sex can tend to figure in earlier on. But I appreciate that. I appreciate the teasing and the payoff when we do get it. I was gonna say each little step means so much then because you get like the handhold and just or even like the brush of fingers means so much. Just a hug means so much. So it was brought up in our Patreon live because we kind of were talking about there's a lot of K-dramas that don't have sex scenes and that's okay too. And we also love that and why we love it. And one of our Patreons, I don't want to call her out by name in case she doesn't want what she says about that to be on air. But she mentioned that for her, it's like a fantasy that, you know, there's a fantasy world where a man will do or you're, you know, the person you love will do so much for you kind of without expecting anything return. I, I kind of thought about that too. You know, I kind of made a reference that like, you know, growing up some Sometimes we're told, like, you got to try the milk before you buy the cow, which is like terrible and (laughs) and horrible. But it's like true, like you hear that term. And whereas in K-dramas, like, oh, you get these scenes where a man is going to crawl through a tunnel for 20 hours, or he's gonna cross a hell bridge with flying knives for you, not expecting anything in return, not expecting, well, now you owe me a kiss, or now you, you know, you owe me your body, they just do it because they love you. And that is a fantasy that I think we can all appreciate. And that is one thing. Yeah, like, while there are times I want sex scenes in my dramas, it's also K dramas, it's also okay when there isn't one, because it's still a beautiful progression of a relationship that's really give and take. Yeah, I like that a lot. And I do think that it is just kind of, you know, we all have like different emotional needs and moods. And, you know, sometimes it is fun to see something like, you know, the on Po Yun full shirtless like you know like you're like ooh, look at that like side butt <laughs> yeah, side butt yeah, you can, like side, forgotten my name yeah side butt <laughs> you know like I'm, I'm not gonna say no but at the same time if I had that all the time too then like I feel like I get like emotionally desensitized and so I like to shake it up and look I am a giant Jane Austen fan and I can like recite whole parts to things like Emma and I think that that also speaks a lot to what I love in a K-drama too, and why I also feel like sometimes I have a more enriching and connective experience, possibly because there is no overtly sexualized content, because I end up focusing on like all the little, those little connective moments. It does feel very like old school, romantic, gentlemanly. And then it also like kind of just like invites you to like access other parts of your brain in terms of like connection and fantasy and you know wish fulfillment and I think that's nice I think because honestly I do think a lot for me and maybe for other folks too is like keeping it fresh if I all if I have it all one way all the time I'm gonna get bored with it talking about sex (laughs) yeah but yeah I like to shake it up okay so is there anything else that any of you need to get off your chest about K-dramas and heat 
I have something. Look, I've learned a long time ago not to like engage in reviews and like let reviews be a review space where, you know, as a book writer, people will talk about content I create and like make decisions based on it and have opinions based on it. And some of it lets me know where I could do better. Some of it I disagree with. It just it depends, but it's not my space. And the same for the podcast. Honestly, I feel like people review us, we get nice compliments, sometimes we get criticisms. And again, I think like that's not a place for us to engage. But today I want to engage and I want to engage on this idea of K-dramas and heat because I have also seen this idea sometimes that like people seem to think that like I'm coming at this or we're coming at this from the stage of we get disappointed when a K-drama doesn't have as much heat because we might bring it up or talk about something. And I want to say that for me, and I think this goes for all of us, that's not the case. And that's not even like what the show like this is about. It's about what I just kind of touched on, which is sometimes I do think that there are dramas that would just fundamentally have been better with some of the plot beats having more of a sexualized content just for my taste completely understandable if you have a different perspective. And sometimes I think it works incredibly well not to. And so for me, I think as long as it fits the story, I don't mind what the heat level of the drama is going to be as long as I'm having an emotionally rich experience. I guess I wanted to put that out there just to make sure that like, if anyone ever thinks that I'm coming at this in terms of like, I've got some like Western lens where I'm like, sex needs to be in everything for me to like care about the romance. That's not where I'm coming from with this at all. But sometimes I will argue that like having some more sexualized content would probably deepen the story in a way that I would feel more connected to not just for titillation's sake. So I have seen that comment just get raised sometimes so I wanted to kind of just I don't know it's my time <laughs> and I wanted to get that well, off yeah the, I 100% chest. agree yeah I think we've all established here that there are great romance stories that don't have sex in them and we still find them incredibly romantic so yeah this is not a show about saying put more sex in K-dramas, not by any means. I think it's okay to also talk about it. We're romance writers. Yes. And so this is fun to discuss for us. Like, and, you know, we talked about, we want to talk about, you know, female desires and making it non-taboo as well. So that's part of this as well, as we're discussing, you know, K-dramas from that lens, which was the whole point of our podcast. So it's really fun to discuss K-dramas in that aspect. And since we've been doing, like, I think this is a show where for the first time in a while, we kind of leaned more into a lot of the books that we like, you know, the fact that we write and write romance. To close it out today, why don't we either give a wreck of a book that either is like smoking hot or it's closed door but done right and share a book wreck of one of those two things to close us out today. So I know I've recommended Tessa Bailey books on the podcast before, but to me, she writes some of the best absolute best sex scenes in romance. And also she's really known for her dirty talk. And it's true. Her dirty talk is absolutely incredible. So one of my favorite books of hers is actually an older one. It's called Staking His Claim. And it's in the Line of Duty series. And so it's a best friends, an older brother's best friends trope, which is absolutely my favorite. So it's about a man who is kind of dominant and always had, you know, a thing for his best friend's little sister, but she is, you know, kind of, he views her as like young and innocent. And the sex scenes are very good. They really explore the character's personalities and further their arcs. And it's just, ugh, it's such a great book. So I'm going to share one that I just finished reading that I absolutely loved, and it's Book Lovers by Emily Henry. And I'm also going to give a nod to the audiobook narrator, which is Julia Whalen, and she's one of my favorite narrators. And she's also an author herself and also a former 
child actor. I think she still does some acting. But anyway, the reason why I'm bringing up the audiobook is sometimes audiobooks can make sexy books even sexier. And this one 100% does. And it is a romance between a literary agent and a book editor. And they're both working on the same book together. And also in this small town having a sort of small town romance experience themselves. But there's not a ton of sex on the page, but when the stuff happens, it is super sexy. And the way that Julia Whalen voices the hero, Charlie, it's like, and yes, it's a woman doing the voice. It's like the sexiest male voice I've ever heard. So highly recommend. I adore this book. If you like audiobooks or you want to try audiobooks for the first time, please try Julia Whalen's narration of Book Lovers by Emily Henry. And I'm just going to give a quick shout out to a series that I found through another podcast that I enjoy called Faded Mates. So if you do like romance novels, I give a shout out to the Faded Mates podcast. I get good recs on there. It's a romance author and a reviewer. And I think that they get good guests. So anyway, last summer when I was driving out to Yosemite, I was listening to the podcast and they had an author on named Nikki Sloan. And I got sucked in. So I liked her. I liked what she had to say about sex and sex positivity and erotic romance. And so I decided to check her out listening to the series. And so I got sucked into this series that was called Filthy Rich Americans. (laughs) And you know what? I do like filthy. I do like overly wealthy books sometimes like I don't know I guess I do have like a patriarchal kink of like the CE. like I'm not gonna turn that trope down like I know it's cliche but like it always works for me and in this case it's so bananas and it's a love triangle between like a young like college grad a handsome young heir and then his dad <laughs> and it's like <laughs> I don't even know it's bananas and dirty as crap. And I mean, like, it was like brain candy to me and that like, I was like, honestly, like, I I listened to all four books over like the course of a couple of weeks. And I was just like, completely into it knowing that like, yeah, I mean, it just hit all like the like, right level of like fast plot, highly titillating, good character development. So the series is called Filthy Rich Americans. The first book is called The Initiation. And it's because I'm just going to give you because this is not a spoiler it happens almost immediately. She gets like she basically has to marry this like rich young guy. And then he's like part of this family business. And I don't know why. But for whatever reason that they like hang on in the plot, the wife or fiance of the young executive who joins the board. And like I said, we're talking wife and then a male being the executive because like, again, we're talking about like some deeply patriarchal, like kink fetish here. That character that needs to like be serviced by all the members of the board. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) So I don't know what fortune 500 company this is, but like you have to go in the old school boardroom. They all sit around a table your naked body is laid out and they all have to take turns and they have like a timer and it's all like eyes wide shut. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I gotta read this. I have heard uh, this series is super popular. Like it's, it's super popular. It is. And it leans it a lot into, but what's fun is it plays a lot on um, Greek mythology. And so like it v- plays very hard on her being Medusa, the young hero okay. being like Hades and then the, <laughs> the dad being the Minotaur and it works. There's even a maze. And they even, like, play out, like, a minotaur, like, you know, in the maze. I mean, it's, I love it so much. (laughs) (laughs) 
What a note to <laughs> that end sounds on. Amazing. Yeah, it sounds amazing. We started at cat depression and ended at yeah. minotaurs. minotaurs. Yeah. Yeah. All right, then. Well, <laughs> I guess thanks for sticking with us through it all. Yeah. <laughs> and we will see you next time. Annyeong! Kamsamnida! Thank you for listening to Afternoon of Delight. Where can you find us outside the pod? Head on over to afternoonadelight.com. That's A-F-T-E-R-N-O-O-N-A-D-E-L-I-G-H-T dot com. You'll find links to all our social media, our book recs, K-pop and K-skincare recs, and if you want even more Afternoon of Delight, because really who doesn't, you can join our Patreon, where you can choose the patron level that's right for you. Join in daily K-drama conversations, listen to bonus podcast episodes just for patrons, and participate in our monthly live K-drama support group via Zoom. We can't wait for you to be a part of the community. Until next time, Annyeong!